Welcome to Milwaukee Mennonite Church. I'll be the worship leader today. Thank you to Rebecca and Sam for helping with music and to all the the um, readers and for Stevers doing the sound. Um, let's begin by um, looking at um, reading together 878, the um, land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that there are that we are gathering on the traditional territory of indigenous peoples. We affirm that settlers have specific responsibilities in the journey of reconciliation with indigenous peoples, with the Potawatomi, Ojibwe, Ottawa, Fox, Ho Chunk, Menominee, Sauk, Oneida. We give thanks to Creator and to those peoples who have stewarded this land for generations. We are grateful for the opportunity to live, work, and worship here as we witness the reconciling movement of the Spirit and seek to live into right relations with our indigenous neighbors and all of creation. Let's begin um, our worship by praying. Um, the prayer and voices together, number 862. And you can read this with me. You who open doors and dismantle barriers, open our hearts to praise you that we might live the full truth of who we are, that we might live as neighbors and friends, no longer strangers and enemies. Open our hearts to the transforming power of your love, that we might forgive and reconcile, making peace and learning war no more, that we might be your people, one body in one spirit, to tell your grace to all the world. We pray in the name of the one who walked among us as brother and friend, amen. Um, we're going to hear a psalm that um, encourages us to sing. A reading from Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage.
I invite you to stand, if able, to sing our first hymn, which is 180. This is God's Wondrous World. Our next hymn is 419, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
forgot to say thank you to Matthew also for um, leading singing. Um, let's turn to 893 um, as a confession. We already, um, in that last song, um, sang about God's mercy and pardon for sin. Um, and we will continue now um, reading 893. For failing to love others as you have loved us, God of grace, Forgive us for wasting your gifts and hoarding our goods. God of grace, forgive us for plundering the earth and abusing the planet. God of grace, forgive us for fearing those who are strange to us and ignoring those in need. God of grace, forgive us for losing heart and abandoning hope. God of grace, forgive us. For all the ways we turn from you, God of grace, forgive us. We offer our prayers in the name of the one who saves us, Jesus Christ, amen. Um, And let's read number 908 together. From all that is broken, let there be beauty. From what is torn, jagged, ripped, frayed, let there be not just mendings, but meetings unimagined. May the God in whom nothing is wasted gather up every scrap, every shred, and shard, and make them new paths, doorways, worlds. Amen. Um, I forgot to put passing the peace in, um, but let's um, stand and greet each other with the peace of Christ. Our first reading today is from the book of Hosea, chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 5, verse 6. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their distress, they will beg my favor. Come, let us return to the Lord, for it is he who has torn, and he will heal us. He has struck down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the showers, like the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. 
For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to all not for I have come to call not the righteous but the sinners. The final reading is Romans chapter 4 verses 13 through 25. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father to all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. If any of you have been reading articles or listening to really any discussion of the future of the institutional church, particularly in the US, you are probably familiar with the idea that we're in a little bit of an identity crisis right now. Some even think that the church is due for another major reformation, similar to the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox split or the Protestant Reformation. I do not hold this view as it's 
based on the idea that these reformations happen roughly every 500 years and that this is frankly a bad way to do history. Uh, that said, many of the roles that the church has previously played in the US have been fading over time. Uh, from here on out, I am going to distinguish and uh, between church and religion, focusing mainly on church. Um, my use of the word religion refers to belief in a divine entity or essence um, and the worship uh, or ethical devotion to that entity. Uh, while when I say church, I'm referring specifically to the institution or institutions, plural, uh, dedicated to that practice. Uh, in the early 20th century, uh, sociologist Max Weber studied US Christianity, particularly Protestantism, and found that high rates of US church membership in compared to our European counterparts uh, was due to a combination of religious freedom and a high propensity of people to new, move to new places in search of economic opportunity. Essentially, the lack of a state church uh, gave churches a high incentive to compete for members, so to speak, in this sort of free market capitalism sense, if you think about it that way. Um, there wasn't an established state church that was for everyone, so people could just, if they didn't like one church, they could go to a new one. Um, and uh, it also gave those churches no obligation to serve or admit everyone. So it wasn't like a European state church where unless you know you really got into trouble, you were expected to be able to you know christen your kids, get married, and have a funeral at the state church. Um, so, these churches in the US admitted members in large part based on their willingness to abide by church ethical codes, such as abstinence from alcohol, gambling, or in the case of Mennonites, violence, abstinence from violence. This is where you get a lot of the jokes of like, you know, if you take a Mennonite fishing with you, how do you keep them from drinking all your beer? You bring a second Mennonite. Another good one that came out of this era, what's the difference between Methodists and Baptists? Methodists wave to each other in the liquor store. So, uh, and then kind of pairing with that, when someone like me, for example, a transplant, would move from city to city, uh, you know, we seek out jobs and loans, and the people, you know, when they're trying to evaluate someone who was new in town, a lot of times they would use whatever knowledge they had of their church membership to try to evaluate their character. So someone, you know, if I applied to a job, someone look at me, see, okay, you're a Mennonite. Well, you are known for being good workers, um, relatively modest living, so ask me to pay you as much as I could. Um, oh, but you know, if there's a war that comes up, you know, this could get dicey. Uh, 
So if it sounds to you like that is discrimination, um, that's because it was, it absolutely was. This is when people can still do that. Um, so <laughs> this role of the church has faded, not because, not only because it is now essentially illegal to discriminate on, against people based on religion, uh, but it's also that sort of character validation purpose has also uh, been replaced by things like credit scores and background checks. So, moving on from that, there's also sort of what you could call the fire insurance role of the church. That churches, you know, assure their parishioners that if you go here and you believe like we do and you do the things that we do, you will go to heaven. Um, with uh, a lot of, I mean, th this is still in part a function, particularly if you look at uh, evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches. Um, but if you're looking at like mainline Protestant churches, for one, a lot of us don't really want to talk about fire and brimstone all the time. And a lot of parishioners don't really like the idea that their friends who don't go to church with them are going to hell. So that, that kind of function in the U.S. is fading away. Um, so kind of some of the common wisdom emerging is for what role the church should play uh, in our lives today is that it should be a source of ritual, community, and meaning. But the thing is that's not necessarily unique to churches. Um, there's a number of clubs and community organizations that, you know, people meet at regular times. Um, they might have some similar values. They might uh, find community with each other. Um, and then a lot of people have been burned by churches in that way, you know, with histories of sexual abuse and uh, patriarchy, all sorts of not great stuff. Uh, makes people really soured to churches. But the thing is, as people leave churches, there is a vulture-like entity that is more than willing to fill the gap, uh, which I would refer to as capitalism. See, a lot of workplaces, seeing that their employees now have their Sundays free, are looking around and saying, hmm, that's a nice Sunday you've got there. You want to come into the office? We'll give you a promotion. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Shen has recently written a book called Eat, Pray, Code, when she was l where she re really <laughs> analyzed the spiritual practices of Silicon Valley startups. Um, a lot of these startups you know, had people coming in who maybe attended church. You know, If they had nine to five jobs beforehand, they had time after work or on the weekends to be in the church band or the church choir, just attend. Um, but when they got Silicon Valley jobs, now they were working 70, 80 hours a week, found themselves way too tired to go in, into church. Uh, and the thing is, a lot of these startups would have meditation groups. They would have, you know, religious clubs similar to, you know, a, a club that you might have at university. 
But one of the big problems with that, not or one of the big problems with that is that people became even more segregated in their spiritual practices than they already had been. In fact, not even everyone at a given company was practically able to attend these things. Um, the salaried workers who didn't necessarily get paid based on the hours they work would flatly go to these functions, but the elderly workers had to keep plugging, chugging, and coding. So, it, and it wasn't just only people who worked for this lucrative startup, but only the highest paid workers of that lucrative startup that were getting to attend and receive these spiritual practices. Furthermore, it puts people's spiritual, social, and vocational eggs all in one basket. If they lose their jobs at their startup, they have nothing. So their bosses were essentially capturing their entire lives. Another way, um, another way in which there are this, you know, kind of seeking of ritual, community of meaning, is popping up in a little bit of a problematic, well, not just a little bit of a problematic way, but a problematic way is what we're seeing in Christian nationalism, where people don't necessarily see Christianity as a, an ethical framework, but more of an identity and one that they want to see become uh, universal throughout the US by force. Um, they certainly get ritual by attending on Easter and Christmas. They get community by uh, finding other people who also want to take over the world, and meaning in wanting to take over the world, so to speak. I, I exaggerate a bit, but not that much. Which brings me to our scriptures today, because as we focus on ritual, community, and meaning, we actually find the scriptures somewhat rejecting this. Uh, in Romans, uh, we constantly see, you know, if it was the adherence of the law, in effect, the people committing to the rituals and the various practices written in law, uh, faith is null in promise is void. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's neither violation. For this reason, it depends on faith. Is that focus on our religion being the thing that keeps our ritual community and meaning in place and squarely focused on God. In Hosea, which is actually what I was primarily relying on as I was thinking through all of this. Hosea was teaching or <clears throat> prophesying to Israel. Um, and at the time, Israelites were definitely performing the sacrifices that they needed to, 
as well as sacrifices to idols, as well as uh, <laughs> practicing systemic uh, economic injustice, as well as discriminating against widows and orphans. So that's why Hosea says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God was saying, all of these religious practices are not what's important to me. What is important to me is that you love me and that you practice that active love by rejecting the idols, by bringing about economic justice, and by protecting widows and orphans. And then another thing that I really like to look at is in the New Testament, when, they, when either Jesus or Paul or someone else quotes the Old Testament, a lot of times they change a word. So in a Hosea, what we see here is that I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But in Matthew, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So mercy and steadfast love are essentially being made equivalent here, which I find fascinating given that these days, especially in the progressive circles that frankly most of us are a part of here, forgiveness is getting a bit of a bad rap. A lot of people, you know, frankly hurt and understandably feeling quite hurt, think that forgiveness lets people off easy. They have seen forgiveness weaponized, as in the case of being asked to forgive someone who abused them. But I think this is a way in which particularly churches like ours have a unique function in our society is because we see that mercy is necessary for love. Because frankly, there's no such thing as an institution that doesn't hurt anybody because it's made up of people and people hurt people. If you wanna avoid anything that's gonna ever be problematic, you're gonna be a very, very, very lonely person. And that doesn't mean that we need to just treat problems, systemic problems in our institutions is just inevitable in the cost of doing business. We need to hold our leaders accountable. We need to make sure that we're doing everything to can that we can to keep people safe. But forgiveness and mercy are going to be essential parts of holding us together in spite of the ways that we fail each other. Our, our world today is one in which people are lonelier than ever and where they're seeking out ritual, community, and meaning. 
And unfortunately, a lot of their bosses want to be all of that to them. But when we not only provide these things, but anchor it in a deep religion and faith in God and a devotion to treating those around us the way that Christ wants us to, we can be a part of the people that not only fulfill the needs of others, but act as Christ to them and push back against those who want to take advantage of them. Let's begin responding by singing the hope that Liz offered to us today. In 205, light dawns on a weary world.
letter F. There's, yeah, there are a few words that you can join in on. Um, mainly, um, I'll say, God of mercy, and you say, hear our prayer. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Gracious God, we bring our prayers to you as acts of love for you and for our neighbors. God of mercy. Those who live near. God of mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for our community and for our neighbors. We pray for places where there are um, there are struggles in the city, in the surrounding areas, where there is injustice, inequality, um, where people don't feel heard or understood. God of mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the church. As we were talking about churches growing smaller, um, young people um, not attending in some cases, we, we pray, God, that um, you would continue to work in your church and that we would be open to um, your spirit and the way you want to move in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Help us as we, we remember how you have worked in our lives and through the church, and as we share that with others. God of mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the world. Well, we think of Sudan and the conflict there. And we don't know how to pray, but we, um, we mourn with those who are hurting, who had to leave their homes, um, who are living with so much uncertainty and fear. We pray you'd bring your comfort and, and help. We pray for other areas of the world where there is conflict. Um, we pray that your peace can prevail. God of mercy, hear our prayer. 
We pray for our other concerns that we carry in our hearts. God of mercy, hear our prayer. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Um, and you can look at number 989 if you'd like, um, or pray it as you have memorized it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, let's stand and sing um, number 765. Listen, God is calling. For a blessing, go forth in peace and be of good courage. Hold fast to that which is good, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the God who fills the hungry, hungry with good things fill us all with Christ-like love and with a consuming hunger for justice in our land and in our world. Amen. Thank you.